Hello. Tens of millions of people are already being vaccinated against COVID-19 right across the world. But the speed and efficiency of the vaccination programmes in each country are anything but uniform. How and when can we return to normal? Over the course of this episode, we're going to hear from experts in the economy, investing and healthcare to understand the implications. And we'll hear from China, a country that's virtually free from the virus, about what its remarkable return to economic growth could tell us about the prospects for the rest of us. The pandemic has triggered a switch from the age of technology to the age of science, says one of my guests in a conversation full of big ideas. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity International's Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, joining me are global economist Anna Stubnitska, global equities portfolio manager Amit Loder, and Judith Feingold, a portfolio manager with a focus on healthcare and a lead on Fidelity's COVID working group. Thank you all for joining me. Hi, Hi, Hi everybody. Now, it's still just about New Year. So can I ask you about your New Year resolutions, specifically those that might have been forged by your experiences in 2020? Anna, let me start with you. Yes, my resolution is to worry less about things that I cannot control and focus on um, uh, trying to enjoy little things in life. I think that sounds wise enough. There's plenty of stuff we can't control at the moment, uh, isn't there? Uh, Amit, how about you? Yeah, I feel like we are in week uh, 55 of 2020 rather than the third week of 2021. So difficult to answer your question, Richard, as always. Um, but I feel like... Maybe, you know, maybe you're on the Julian calendar. I think it's only just uh, <laughs> happened now, the New Year on that calendar. Uh, oh, absolutely. I feel like it should. But, you know, I feel like this lockdown in the UK is is a little bit higher on my COVID exhaustion scale than the prior ones. So really, the resolution is more patience. And the wish for 2021 also is basically more patience for everyone around me, especially my kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, something I shall bear in mind. Thank you for that advice. And Judith, how about you? My resolution remains the same as I started in the first lockdown last March, and it's to learn how to cook. I'm not making much progress, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that insight into uh, the fine gold household. Yeah. Let's now turn to matters at hand. Anna, can you give us a quick overview of the global economy at the start of the year? Where do we where do we stand? Um, well, we uh, are in the midst of uh, another lockdown, uh, as you know, particularly here in the UK, but also in Europe. Um, generally, thinking about 2021, I think it is the year of uh, a rebound uh, on the back of um, vaccine deployment and continued stimulus from central banks and uh, uh, fiscal authorities. Um, however, the near-term outlook is challenged by this uh, waves uh, of uh, COVID uh, uh, and the lockdowns are weighing on the economy. So in terms of the quarterly path through the year, um, we see uh, significant slow down or even recession uh, in the UK and Europe, especially in Q1, potentially in Q2. But as we move to the second half of the year, we think that um, vaccine um, rollout combined with the stimulus could potentially lead to quite a strong rebound in the business cycle globally. So um, Amit, for you, that means um, you've got to sustain patience through the first six months of this year. And Judith, you've got time to learn to cook. So that's, um, that's the silver linings to uh, 
to this. Let me ask you, though, Judith, um, because you, I mentioned in the introduction, you help steer Fidelity's COVID working group, which means that you're regularly putting together and assimilating all the data on the pandemic and the vaccination programs. How hopeful are you um, sort of building on what Anna's just talked about from an economic point of view? Yeah, I think that Anna and I are definitely in line, but I have one caveat, which is, you know, there is potential downside if we were to see a new mutation, um, which would evade significantly the vaccines. And these are likely, are they, these mutations, simply because we've got so many people infected now that, that, that increases the possibility that they might mutate. Absolutely. So I think, uh, you know, coronaviruses by nature are RNA viruses and they like to mutate. It's what they do. And then you have this coronavirus, which has managed to kind of sweep the world and infect probably over 100, you know, huge numbers of people. So by that increases their selection pressure to mutate. And what about vaccine supply? Because um, if you take uh, the UK, for example, um, I'd say a good start seems to be the verdict um, here, although some troubles seem to be appearing at the moment around supply. What are you seeing, not just here in the UK, but in, uh, in all countries around, around that aspect? It's going to be very country by country specific. And I think, you know, there's going to be a few key things. So the first thing that's going to be key for each country is whether they have a nationalised healthcare service that infrastructure will really help speed through vaccine deployment. The second thing that I think is going to become more apparent is country by country kind of influence on vaccine procurement. So obviously in the US, for example, that's the country that has really developed all of these vaccines. They're going to have the first bit of the supply. Similarly, in the UK, we're fortunate to have the AstraZeneca vaccine. I think you're going to see other areas, especially the EU, that may struggle a little bit more in really getting those first vaccine supplies. Okay, uh, Amit, um, is any of this making you more positive in your own outlook and perhaps how you adapt your own portfolio? Yeah, I think, um, you know, just uh, following on from what Anna and Judith mentioned, you know, the equity markets are always more forward looking. Um, so I'd say that we are more in the thrill of the chase right now phase of looking forward to the reopening, um, you know, looking forward to two quarters when we will all be out uh, going to restaurants, uh, traveling the world again. So I think that's really the focus of the equity markets. And, you know, you will have two quarters, I think, of very strong GDP growth because you will have the manufacturing side, you know, the the thing that we've all been doing, which is buying products, whether PCs or iPhones kicking on well. And then the service side, which is lagged, will, will also come through. So we will have those two quarters, which will be very strong. But the key question is really what happens after that. And I think that is that is really what is preoccupying my mind in terms of you know three potential scenarios that I see uh, for the next three to five years once we exit those two quarters, which is what the market is really focused on at this point of time. Always important to keep that long term view uh, in mind as well. But what are you actually doing in terms of um, what you're buying and what you're selling at the moment? Don't give me um, individual uh, companies, but in terms of the the pattern, how would you describe it? Oh, Richard, I had the full list ready for you. But be, be, <laughs> I don't think we're allowed to, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, basically, I think, you know, not much has changed in terms of the way I thought about uh, creating the portfolio last year, where I, I bucketed it into three buckets. Uh, bucket number one was the virus bucket, which is, uh, you know, companies which do well in the virus phase. So things like Netflix, which had, you know, a really good quarter last, um, uh, just, uh, just last night. Things which will do well irrespective. So things like Unilever, toothpaste, you know, the, uh, the, the steady as she goes names. And then the third bucket really 
was the, the the recovery place so the industrial companies the energy companies which do well when you know when we come back out and, and do the things that we're supposed to do so energy demand going up so so my portfolio has been fairly diversified across these things and I think the the reason I have had this portfolio and it's worked really well for us in 2020 is because we live in an environment of uncertainty I, again as I talked about I think there are a number of scenarios that we can conjure up in terms of how you know things will look like and I think a diversified view a diversified strategy of how we are going to navigate this environment is very important. So, so that's that's kind of what I've done. I'm I'm feeling a little bit more positive on the recovery side. I think you know every week that we uh, that we give the vaccines, we don't have any incidents. I think the equity markets take a little bit more confidence. I take a little bit more confidence that that we don't have too many issues. We will have you know those those small minor issues, but you know every million more vaccinated, I think, just makes everybody happier. I'm sure it does, particularly if you're one of those millions. Um, um, will there come an inflection point, though, when your confidence um, has incrementally reached such a level that um, you start to make um, bigger changes to your portfolio? Yeah, I think the two things that I'm really monitoring for that, one is um, you know, central bank accommodation, uh, and the second is the outlook for PMIs. And I think both are slightly interrelated, which is that in this period is really unique in terms of the monetary accommodation that we've seen. We've never seen anything like this historically, uh, which is, you know, $600 checks making their way into your bank accounts every month is, is a pretty unique environment. And once we exit this, this vaccine period, this entire feel-good environment, which the equity markets are in because of this monetary stimulus, will start to come back a bit. And I think that is the point of time where I think one has to be a little bit more uh, cautious in terms of portfolio positioning, be a little bit more circumspect in terms of you know what you do and which stocks you invest in. So I think that is really how one should think about the glide path and the framework of you know looking forward to those two quarters where things will be very strong, but then also being um, abreast of, of of changes on the fiscal policy side, on the central bank accommodation side. As we exit this this period, as the population gets vaccinated, as central banks feel better that they can take the morphine away from the patient. But let me um, ask Anna about then that's because um, and it's right. There's been you know extraordinary fiscal stimulus um, in some countries like the US. Um, but how are the central banks telegraphing what they're thinking about um, their positioning as we come out of this in the, sometime during 2021? Central banks uh, remain extremely cautious and uh, they are trying to uh, send very dovish messages uh, about their determination uh, to keep monetary policy extremely accommodative. I think um, we need to remember that we are coming out uh, of the crisis, as in we, <laughs> the global economy, with a, a much higher debt burden. Um, it was the case before, that was already very high, but now the government debt in particular uh, has spiked, uh, reaching levels not seen uh, since the Second World War. Um, so it's really not feasible for central banks to suddenly start withdrawing accommodation and start raising rates. So um, looking, um, as Amit says, 
even beyond this couple of quarters when growth can be very strong in 21, um, we still don't see key central banks like the Fed and the ECB withdrawing that accommodation anytime soon. Uh, the Fed is unlikely to hike uh, until at least, I think, 2025. Um, and uh, remember also, they have moved to a new framework, a new policy framework where they target average inflation. So their objective now is to get inflation rising sustainably to target of 2% and above the target. Now, to achieve that, again, they will need to sustain this accommodation for a long period of time. Now, of course, the biggest risk here is the central bank credibility. And um, as again, as Ahmed says, um, as we see strong growth, markets are very optimistic looking through the current uh, slowdown. Um, markets might, might start testing that credibility. And one risk that we can see in 21 is um, perhaps a uh, repeat uh, of a, a taper tantrum scenario um, where uh, the markets uh, reacted negatively to uh, a message from the Fed that they might start withdrawing accommodation at some point in time. And that's why we have seen the Fed speakers over the past couple of weeks really pushing against that notion that it doesn't matter what um, growth is going to be uh, in the near future or uh, where the economy is, unless they see inflation rising sustainably uh, above target and unemployment uh, at very, very low levels, pre-COVID levels or even lower, they will not be withdrawing accommodation. So we've got central banks slightly or very hamstrung by the levels of debt. They can't increase uh, interest rates because that would um, make all manner of things go bust, um, countries included perhaps. And then cautious optimism uh, that Amit was describing. So Judith, do you think that markets have got this right? Um, do you think that they are pricing things um, correctly or are markets too optimistic about the, the vaccine rollouts or too pessimistic about those mutations that you talked about a little bit earlier? I guess there's two things. At the moment, I think the markets have got it about right, but there are just two caveats. Number one, the mutations that I mentioned earlier. And then number two, following on from the mutations that we know about, for example, the UK variant. I think that that has changed things quite a lot. That high transmissibility means that we're going to have to immunize a higher percentage of the population to really successfully reopen. So you've seen it kind of subtly, for example, in the UK government's discussions. Oh, now we're going to go from vaccinating the high risk to guess what? All adults are going to have it by the spring. But what they're actually saying is that based on this new higher transmissibility mutation to really reopen successfully, actually, we're going to need a higher percentage of the population vaccinated. I don't think that that thought has necessarily gone in other countries around the world. But I think it's going to get there. That may push back timing slightly. Again, I think if it's just one quarter, the market will probably look through it. Um, but if it's more than that, that might be an issue. And Amit, are you looking at different countries um, in, in different ways based on uh, the path of the, um, of the virus and the uh, vaccinations? Yeah, I think, you know, looking at things on a global basis, I mean, China has been a good, um, you know, case study for all of us in terms of how they've managed things. But, you know, other countries like uh, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, 
New Zealand have done an excellent job of of how they've managed this crisis, and they've also given us a good sense of how things will will move forward. Um, you know, I just say to to add on to Judith's point, you know, this is uh, me as a generalist, um, you know, kind of thinking about about the the vaccine and and the virus. You know, remember that in the UK we have sixty eight million people, but we have only one hundred and forty thousand hospital beds, only four hundred thousand ICU beds. So you know, just a one percent of the population falling six, which is 680,000 people, can have a huge impact on hospitalization, NHS, and all of this. So we're really trying to look at, you know, the difference between really large numbers and then uh, try and project forward. So there's a huge degree of uncertainty built in, in terms of how things are going. So I completely agree with Judith that the market's priced in about right in terms of what we see today. But a lot can change as we progress through this year. And one has to be monitoring all these developments. So far, so good. I think we all really need to celebrate that we have three uh, vaccines in the pipeline. We have you know, a lot of supply coming through. So far, the supply is looking like it's coming through really well. So you know, there's a lot to celebrate, I think, that, that we should not forget in this uh, COVID exhaustion period. The COVID exhaustion period. Um, I feel an acronym coming on. Um, okay, Anna, it's... Uh, it's a global problem. It doesn't really matter if one country fixes it, because all countries really have got to reach a certain threshold. Are there any particular economies that are concerning you at the moment? Um, Amit's pointed out China, which we'll come to later as a success story, certainly for now. Um, what about the other end of the scale? Where are you worried about? There are definitely some differences already emerging across countries um, based on uh, a couple of factors, and one of them uh, is vaccine procurement, um, but also the, the speed of vaccination. Um, and if we look at which countries have been more successful, Israel, and I'm sure Judith will probably talk about it because this is the prime example where the vaccination pro program is going really well. My parents who live in Israel have already been vaccinated and they are not uh, the, the, the highest age threshold. But when I look at the other side of the spectrum, in Europe, for example, France has had a really bumpy start to the vaccination program. And I think that's something that will determine um, how fast the country will be able to reopen and that will probably be also a, a drag on other European countries in terms of uh, opening borders and removing mobility restrictions. And Judith, what is making these vaccination programs so different? I Israel is maybe an exceptional um, case because it's you know it's a very small country and very well organized, you know, with a strong military to sort everybody into mobilization. They're used to that. But what, what could we learn from what they've done that would be applicable in, in a country like France to try and um, uh, speed things up? I think France's concern is going to be on vaccine supply. Um, they, France made a very large bet with procuring the French vaccine, which was the Sanofi vaccine, which, as we all know, unfortunately, uh, got to phase one only at the end of the year and then had a setback. And unfortunately, they're going to be impacted now, you know, in terms of getting the vaccine supply. So I think it brings up an interesting thought, though, which we are kind of seeing, which is more kind of country nationalism when it comes to holding on to biopharma companies. And it's definitely something that I've thought about when I've been thinking about M&A and the broader healthcare industry 
for example, I don't think that the UK would be very happy to part with AstraZeneca at the moment. So, you know, I think I think it's an interesting investment discussion. I guess there's an element of nationalism both in uh, the success story and also um, in the in the failure. Um, Amit, thinking about countries, um, does the success of um, a vaccine program, I mean, really a really good one in Israel or a you know, moderately to pretty good in the UK at the moment. Does that change how you think about um, investing? Would you be more disposed towards UK uh, equities or equities with exposure to the UK market? Yeah, I think there is, you know, definitely a feel-good factor which will come through in the population once they feel like they're out of this period. So, you know, I think that definitely plays on my mind. But, you know, more generally, I imagine that, you know, most people understand that the companies listed, the large companies listed in most of these exchanges are multinationals. So, you know, what happens in the vaccine program in the UK does not really impact Unilever or Royal Dutch Shell or BHP Bulletin or Glaxo to that matter that much. And, you know, same for Sanofi or or some of the other names. It does impact maybe the banking system to a certain extent, but, you know, beyond that, not not that much. I think what's what's kind of more interesting for me is, is two things. One is the privacy issues, which is, you know, one of the things which is not that well known is that, you know, from from the Israeli perspective of the vaccination program, Israel is sharing all the data back with the vaccine companies, um, which is, you know, quite interesting because, you know, it would be much tougher to try and do that in the US or even in the UK for for that matter, whereas Israel can, can you know, make that. And that's why they've got such a, you know, huge degree of supply, especially also because of the fact that they're paying much higher than the rest of the world. So there are some data privacy issues, which which we also have to think about, uh, you know, as we go go along with this, you know, adding on to, to Judith's point on, on the overall vaccination program. I think there's a lot to learn. Um, you know, COVID's been around only for a year. Um, you know, if you think about the internet, it's been around only for 20 years, actually. So, you know, there's a lot to learn from COVID over the next few years in terms of how it impacts behaviors, how it impacts change, how it impacts companies. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we will learn over a period of time. I don't think it's going to be a light bulb moment. It's going to be more of a gentle sunrise. Nice, nice image. Judith, did you want to come in on that? Um, yeah, I, so I just think that there's probably two interesting kind of aspects to that. When we think about vaccine supply and vaccinating, I think that we're very, very narrow sighted as countries, you know, focusing solely on our own kind of immunizing the kind of maximum percentage of people in the UK. But at some point soon, we're going to open our airports again, and then we're going to get people from all around the world through London Heathrow. So actually, the UK also needs to be focusing on global um, vaccination, because this is a global pandemic. I think COVID has proven this better than anything else that we could imagine. So I, th- I, I am concerned that especially when it comes to the emerging markets, we're being a little bit narrow minded at the moment. Secondly, I just think that Amit's comments on Israel is absolutely fascinating. It's something that I'm watching very closely. And it kind of gets us to this term of herd immunity, which has been out there. I'm not such a fan of the term, to be perfectly frank. However, I do think it's important because we still don't know what percentage of the population we really need to vaccinate at this point to get some control of the pandemic. And can I also, on the, on the percentage of the population... There is also the question of acceptance, whether the people are prepared to be vaccinated and what proportion decide um, that they don't want to go ahead. I mean, how, how is that playing out as, as the vaccine um, programmes get underway? Well, there's been some quite good survey data on it and it's very country by country. So unfortunately, for example, in America, it became a political issue, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. Um, if you look at China, they have kind of sky high acceptance of vaccines. So um, it's very country discreet. 
as Amit said, I hope that the more, you know, you see another million being vaccinated, they're okay. Like people will start to get a little bit of comfort. I think that the companies were extremely um, upfront. You know, they published all their trial protocols. There was a real push from the companies that these should not be politicized, that they should be seen as kind of safe vaccines. So um, let's hope that that messaging has been successful. I, just one thing I'd add there is that France is the is the one that I'd watch. Uh, you know, that's always had forty percent plus of the population which are anti-vaxxers, um, and so that's that's the country besides the U.S. that I think is is pretty important to watch, especially from a European context. Good, uh, good counsel there. Um, we're going to turn to China now because you've mentioned it, Judith, um, a couple of times and how successful they've they've been there. Um, and they've also got an awful lot of people to, to get through if they were to start um, po- uh, vaccinating the entire adult population. Um, I spoke earlier to Fidelity's China healthcare analyst, Yuanlin Lang, about how the country that was first in and first out of this epidemic is handling its vaccine programme. Yuanlin, welcome. Could you tell me, first of all, what is the picture in China at the moment as far as COVID infections are? And, you know, is, is, is it as under control as we hear? Yeah, so the situation now in China is, uh, I would describe it as well under control. So like, say, for example, you know, there were cases in the northeast part of China, you know, around one month ago. Uh, that's that's actually my hometown, so I know the details a lot. But then, you know, things have been uh, settling down. No new cases for several days. So you're you're hearing from people you know in that town that it's it's all been brought under control. Yes, and I know the people, you know, have uh, close contact with the confirmed cases. You know, the government have uh, all the people bas- basically in that city tested for COVID and then tested for twice, actually. Okay, so the authorities um, have, have proven that they're able to, to get things um, under control, test and trace and controlling the, um, the, the movement of, of people. What about vaccination, though? Because it's a very precarious situation. We know that COVID is so easily passed on between people that you might have under control today, but it just takes one person to come in and it could all escalate um, pretty quickly. Tell me about the vaccination program. Sure, sure. So China has got one uh, vaccine approved and then, you know, several under phase three development right now. Some cities have already started to vaccinate people. The vaccination program is actually different from, uh, you know, each local government. People in Shenzhen can just line up and then get vaccination. And then, you know, people in Beijing, probably, you know, like uh, uh, SOEs will organize people to get vaccination. Those, those are companies. So um, a state-owned enterprise would uh, will organize it for its own uh, employees. Yeah. So th- is there any um, phasing of, uh, it doesn't sound like there is, any phasing of people who are more at risk or not? Because in the West, it's very much the older generations or people who are in some way vulnerable because of an underlying sickness who are being targeted first. So I think, you know, in China, the situation is a little bit different because there's no active domestic pandemic right now. So, you know, like people that with high risk is in China is not, you know, healthcare workers or elderly people, but rather uh, the people who deal with uh, export uh, or people who is going to travel abroad for a business trip. So it's more like controlling the border and then controlling, you know, the people um, coming from overseas or traveling to overseas. It's more like uh, if we can protect the people at the border well, 
then we can protect the people that are living inside. Yeah. So that's a pragmatic approach and one which very much protects the businesses and the economy. This seems that it is yet another thing which is going to um, allow the Chinese economy to do better in 2021 than probably many of the other economies around the world. Yeah, that's uh, that. That's likely. Um, what are the supplies like at the moment of the Chinese vaccine? Is it one and a half billion people in China ought to get this vaccine at some stage? Right. So as mentioned, uh, so we have one approved and then we have several uh, running the phase three trials right now for the Chinese vaccines. And then, you know, China also in, uh, in licensed some vaccines from the the overseas like uh, BioNTech or, uh, you know, AstraZeneca and Oxford vaccine. So by end of uh, year end 2021, uh, China should have enough vaccine supply to vaccinate around half of the population. But whether they will do that, I, I don't know. What, what do you think they will do? Is it because the, the threat is not perceived to be the same as it is in other, other places? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about the risk and benefit. So in China, um, the risk of not taking vaccine but get contract uh, of COVID is not very high. To be honest, and 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 what are attitudes towards the vaccine? Would there be high uptake, or are people skeptical of uh, of taking it? Uh, actually, there's a survey, and China, I think, is uh, is probably among uh, one of the highest countries with acceptance uh, level. But it's just uh, that you know whether there's needs for that and uh, how uh, the government plan to roll it out. I'm I'm not very sure because there's no official announcement yet. Okay, so but um, even at best, it would be um, half the population by by the end of the year. So, Yuanlin, just one final question: As you you've painted a picture of um, very effective control within the country, a program of vaccinations being rolled out to people who need them not because they're vulnerable, but because they are um, helping the economy take over. How do you feel about the big picture? Um, of uh, China's prospects in 2021 as you look at the rate of disease and the control of disease and the prospects of controlling it via vaccine as well. What do you think that means for, for China in 2021? I think 2021 in China will be quite similar to you know, 2020, um, you know, uh, apart from the part in the beginning of 2020, you know, when the whole country uh, was combating the COVID outbreak in Wuhan and, uh, you know, Hubei province. Uh, but, you know, we've seen a strong recovery after, you know, uh, COVID has been taken under control for the rest of 2020. And I think 2021 would be the same. Yuan Lang, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Listening to that, Amit, I mean, it's such a different picture in China to the rest of the world, isn't it? Generally, they've been completely open. You know, restaurants are full. You know, if you look at domestic travel, it's uh, it's back to the highs. You know, the only reason why domestic travel is not higher is because there are no international passengers coming in and going traveling domestically. So, if I in in my books, you know, China is being back to normal. All the companies I talked to told me that by third quarter they were already on year on year growth um, versus uh, twenty nineteen in twenty twenty. So. You know, China's almost like um, like watching a movie that you hoped was playing in your part of the world. Well, just before this recording, Anna, we had the GDP numbers from uh, China and they were um, significantly better than anywhere else in, in the world. I mean, it does seem to be on a completely different uh, track, doesn't it? China uh, is actually the only economy, at least among the key economies, that uh, posted a positive 
growth rate for 2020. China grew 2.3% in, in 2020 versus 6% in 2019. So yes, of course, there was a slowdown, but the bounce was very quick and the output gap created during the uh, COVID crisis was completely closed. Now, that's not the case anywhere else in the world. Um, China economy, as uh, Ahmed was uh, saying, uh, is essentially open. Uh, both manufacturing and services sectors are operating. And very interestingly, talking about different trajectory, it's not just about growth and where China is with respect to um, activity levels, but also with respect to its policy uh, direction. Policy stance is actually quite hawkish. And if you look at um, what the PBOC um, has been doing recently uh, during the uh, a very short uh, SOE default scare at the end of last year, they did inject some liquidity to support the market. But overall, the stance is relatively hawkish. And we actually think that uh, perhaps uh, China is going to be the first country to tighten policy over the next few months. Amit, can I ask you about this? Because, um, you know, from everything that um, that you've already described and that Anna is um, is talking about from the, the policy approach as well, China is almost on a different planet compared with um, the rest of the world. Is there anything that you take um, from the way things have progressed there that you could apply to investing elsewhere in the world? Or are the systems just so different, the monetary policy is so different, the cycle that they're in is so different that actually um, there, is, there are no parallels? So it's not that China is now where the rest of the world would be in you know, three months' time. It's, it's, it's on a, quite a different trajectory, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, there are differences and there are similarities. I think there are differences because, you know, China's managed this crisis much better. The period of the crisis in China has been much shorter, uh, which means the impairment to balance sheets, to, to incomes has been much less. But also the fiscal accommodation in China has also been not as much as we've seen in the West. So I think that makes a huge difference in terms of, you know, how we see the crisis progressing. And I actually completely agree with Anna that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to me that we're talking about um, fiscal prudence in, in China, whereas we're talking about fiscal accommodation continuing in the rest of the world. And you're seeing that in the RMB and, and you know, the currency differentials coming through over there. I'd say there is obviously a lot that we can take away also, which is that, you know, when, when China saw the all clear, and this was also similar to, you know, what happened after SARS, um, you remember there's a, there was a massive revenge buying, revenge travel, which happened. And I think we, we should expect something similar. So in some ways, you know, China is like a movie which is playing, which is giving me some spoilers to what I hope the movie will look like as, as we progress in the West in different parts, depending on how the vaccine comes through, depending on the implementation. So, you know, I think there is some positivity to also be taken out of China. And um, Judith, just one last thing on China, um, because they've developed their own vaccines um, and they've been rolled out within the, um, the, the country there. Where else could benefit from, from those vaccines? Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier that I'm really worried about emerging market supply of vaccines. So I think that we need to look globally at where we can be ramping up manufacturing and make sure that we're trying to get more vaccines to the emerging markets. 
I think China is a really good example of a com- of a country that has been doing a lot of deals with emerging markets along with AstraZeneca. Let's hope J&J as well, because that's a very scalable vaccine, but we have yet to see their data. And um, one last question back to Amit on your idea of um, the uh, the sudden burst in uh, in spending, whether it's goods or services, travel, whatever, people trying to get back into, into restaurants. Um, I miss a pint in a pub, actually. Um, what happens once I've had that pint in a pub? Um, what what happens when that initial burst of activity subsides? Um, where do you think we'll be? Yeah, I think that's that's the the billion or now the trillion dollar question because billions don't count anymore. Um, which is really, I think, you know, I think there are three scenarios that one can conjure up. You know, we we had a similar environment in 1918 after the Spanish flu. I don't um, remember it. Um, I was there, and I think it was a great, uh, great period in terms of you know after the war, the war was over, the flu was gone, um, and and people were back to spending. We had a bit of a recession, and then we had the Roaring Twenties in the U.S. And you know there is quite a few commentators hoping that you know this this period allows us to exit this orbit of slow growth, you know, debt demographic trap that we've been in. And we all go back to spending, growing faster, feeling a lot better. And and I think there is there is some probability, I'd call it maybe 40% probability that that happens after we exit because, you know, the, the elastic push of all this spending, you know, takes us much uh, further forward. There is obviously the the chance that we asymptote back to to the growth rates that we were in the past. We've got much higher debt. You know, fiscal deficit in the U.S. will be higher than World War II levels. I think we'll be crossing 10% fiscal deficits. Anna can correct me if I'm wrong on the math. And I think there is there is a chance that the debt deflation demographics all you know start to to kind of come and and hurt us and so we have these two quarters of growth and then we all go back to where we were just before the pandemic with you know slow growth pockets of growth in a few sectors but otherwise not much happening and then i think you have the tail risk of uh, of either hyperinflation and i think that is something which is you know uh, which is occupying some minds because i don't know if you've heard richard but you know we're we're in the midst of a chip shortage right now we can't you know find enough semiconductor chips to manufacture cars we are seeing shortages across various supply chains at this point of time all of which tends to to worry people that we may be back into some sort of an inflationary environment. So, you know, there's this kind of, as I said, there are three three potential paths, uh, you know, some probabilities around those three potential paths, but that is the trillion dollar question on my mind. Judith, I want to talk about sectors now. You were a doctor in a former life, you're a portfolio manager now, looking at healthcare as we've, um, we've discussed. How has the pandemic changed that sector as you look at it as an investor? I think as I look at it as a healthcare specialist, probably very little, but maybe our generalist look at the healthcare sector, I think has hugely changed. You know, no one had heard of a messenger RNA vaccine. And if I would have told some of our generalist portfolio managers about kind of some cool new biotech modalities, generally I'd be met with a blank stare. Um, Whereas now I think, you know, everyone just wants to talk about science and what's happening and where's the innovation. Um, You know, I would definitely say that messenger RNA is not the only amazing part of innovation within healthcare. It's a really, really exciting time because we're just seeing an acceleration of innovation. So I think from my perspective, it's more kind of generalist acknowledgement and interest in the sector. It's definitely fueled valuation in the last year. But I think that as long as the pace of innovation continues this path, then it's very attractive on a five-year basis. But you're at the epicentre of attention at the moment. That must be pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Amit, um, hearing all of that, are you now more excited about the healthcare sector? I'm probably one of the generalists who gave her the blank stares in the past. Um, In... in, in (laughs) 
I, I really think that, you know, what the last year has, you know, sparked the hope in me is that we are moving from the age of technology to the age of science. Um, and I hope it's not only related to, to biology. And I think there is a big part of biology that I'm very excited about. Judith can talk a lot more about genomics, uh, liquid biopsies, you know, all the things that I'm learning from her on an ongoing basis, precision medicine. Uh, but but the area that I'm really interested in is how we can use science to solve the big problems. You know, over the past few years, we've defunded science. We've invested more in application technology. You know, how many Facebook likes can you get? And, you know, how do you get more people to like your Facebook posts? And, you know, that's where we spent our dollars. And I think hopefully we can, you know, retailer those dollars to be spent more on science so that I think we can, you know, come up with new solutions on renewables, you know, on battery technology, on food prep, on climate change. I think those are areas where, where I feel like I should be spending a lot more time. And then hopefully the lessons that we've learned from the past year make the next 10 years much better. So a new age of science. Um, and we're also entering a new political era. Um, I don't know if I've got these uh, the right way around. It's certainly not an epoch, is it? Um, but uh, the last topic that I want to cover is um, the US. What do you think is going to move from plans and promises to actual reality, Amit? Yeah, I think, you know, we spent a lot of time in Washington uh, virtually um, in November, December, trying to understand the the new Biden administration, you know, what their priorities would be. I'd say there are three kind of things which which one could potentially focus on and maybe one additional one. I'd say the, the climate change aspect was a key focus area of their policies. We've seen, you know, phenomenal performance in some of the, the climate stocks, the renewable stocks, because there is expectation that a lot more will be done. And it will be like Obamacare was for, you know, President Obama, climate change, getting back into Paris, uh, you know, doing more from a global perspective on decarbonization would be a key focus area. So I'd say that's number one. I'd put healthcare and, and focus on, on healthcare technology uh, and spending more on healthcare as, as a close number two, especially because I think it's it's well known that President Biden has had, um, you know, to face a lot of personal tragedies on, on the healthcare front. And I think he has always talked about, you know, investing more in cancer care and things like that. So that, to me, is a continuation of the Obamacare era, trying to take care of more of the, the inequalities. I'd say that the third thing, the, the important question of China and you know how that that plays that relationship plays over a period of time obviously um, you know president trump was probably not the us president that uh, the the us deserved but it was definitely the us president that you know china deserved in terms of the 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 trade deals and all that he managed to do but that caused a lot of upheaval in in global politics globalization i think how how biden tries to to manage that relationship over a period of time i think has probably huge implications for gdp growth uh, across the world because i think it's very important we see how that works through and my bonus was going to be technology um, the reason I think that's that's an interesting one is if we see you know the the changes are moving uh, from east to west. If you look at China, government participation in every sector is becoming a lot more important. I'm spending a lot more time thinking about the influence that government will have on a particular sector, and you see that in China with what they're doing on tech regulation. I think that is one area where I noticed that there was bipartisan consensus that more needs to be done 
to rein in the tech monopolies in the US. So that's an area which which is not on top of the list for investors, which is not on the top of the list right now, but I think is is one of those hidden things that could come and surprise us if we see a lot more happening in that area. And that supports your thesis about the switch from the age of technology to the age of science. Um, Judith, coming back to you just on that point that um, Amit made about um, healthcare and the ambitions that uh, Joe Biden uh, might have there. I mean, presidents in the past have tried and failed to make great strides in in healthcare in the US. Do you think this is the time that we'll we'll see big changes? I think change is already underway. Even under the Trump administration, you had for the first time drug pricing go from being a tailwind to being a headwind. So what's not publicly acknowledged is that legacy drugs have been taking price decreases now, right? As before, they would always be taking price increases. So the change is already there. And the biopharma industry, I think, is acknowledges that there will be change. I think that they're very focused on reducing the out-of-pocket costs so that the consumer benefits and not just the healthcare industry benefits. And to be frank, some of Trump's policies would not have given the reduction to the patient. With the Biden administration, it hasn't been one of their top election manifestos, but it's very difficult to ignore that there is a radical left to the Democratic Party that would like to see really, really revolutionary changes within the healthcare infrastructure. So I think that within the Democrats, there's always going to be two sides opposing each other. At the moment, from our perspective, we tend to think it's going to be more of an evolutionary changes rather than revolutionary changes. Um, And we do think that, you know, with the biopharma industry at a near trough 10 year multiple, this is kind of being acknowledged by the markets. Okay, and the last word to Anna. Big picture stuff here, Anna. Um, You've got a a new president um, being sworn in today. And he's got a clean sweep. He's got both the House and the Senate um, in Congress to um, uh, to support him. Um, what do you think is going to this situation now means for the U.S. economy? The more immediate uh, impact uh, would be from uh, additional fiscal stimulus. Uh, we already uh, know that uh, at the end of the year uh, there was uh, an additional package that was uh, passed and uh, legislated. Now we are looking. Uh, at potentially another trillion. Uh, Biden announced 1.9 trillion. We assume that uh, around 1 trillion uh, passes and is legislated. So despite the clean sweep, as you said, um, actually it might be quite difficult uh, to pass uh, the whole amount. um, And there is uh, uh, quite a big uncertainty about how much will pass. But let's say uh, 1 trillion and let's say around 750 billion I just burst uh, in 2021. Uh, Now that adds uh, somewhere between potentially one to two or even above two percentage points to US growth this year. So we are looking at US growth rate of potentially 7%, uh, if not higher for 2020. So this is the immediate fiscal boost, mostly in the form of COVID relief, right? So this is uh, just uh, to, again, in support incomes, uh, uh, so to support individuals and companies. More importantly, for the medium to long term, would be how much um, is spent on things like infrastructure, because this is something that can uh, affect um, uh, growth trend, uh, particularly at the time where the, the demographic trend is becoming uh, more and more unfavorable. Uh, so this is... Um, something that's very important for us from a medium-term perspective to understand um, what this new government will do in terms of structural policies that can make a difference to 
growth trend, but also inflation. We shall have to wait and see. Thank you, Anna. It's now time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Uh, Anna. So my hot cake um, uh, would be uh, bond proxies. That is, um, in the US, utilities, staples, healthcare, uh, they have lagged uh, um, the re-rating in bonds quite remarkably. Uh, and I think that's something that, um, that could be interesting, uh, particularly uh, given... Uh, uh, our view overall on uh, the the rates remaining uh, low for the foreseeable time, um, and uh, on the hot potato side, I think more tactically we are starting a year at uh, really worrying market levels. Uh, if we look at um, uh, corporate uh, spreads, they're extremely tight. Uh, in, in some indices, uh, companies tighter than before the crisis. So I would think tactically, I do worry about investment grade high yield in, in the developed world, but also in AM. So that's something that uh, I would probably be getting rid of right now. That's a lot of hot potatoes. Um, Judith, um, how about you? Your hot cakes, what do you like? What would you be buying at the moment? I think, you know, in line with my previous comments, uh, my hot cakes are probably still going to be in the biotechnology sector. I think we have to be cautious on some of the small cap valuations, but I think in terms of innovation, I have so many ideas. I think in terms of my hot potatoes, probably, and I'm only talking healthcare specific, I would be wary of some of the tools names because they've had a lot of COVID tailwinds that's well known and valuations are at an all-time peak. So I think that that's kind of better opportunities. And Amit, your hot cakes. Yeah, Richard, you know, I'm going to be consistent because it is, you know, Groundhog Day, really. So I gave you the UK equity markets last time around and the prior time around, and I'm going to stick to the UK equity markets. Um, Maybe that's hope over better judgment. And your hot potatoes. What have Um, you given up on (laughs) if it's not UK equities? You know, hot potato, I think I like both of the hot potatoes that the, the ladies gave there, but maybe I'll add one um, additional one, which is, you know, I, I like the long-term outlook for renewables. But when I look at some of the valuations in the renewable space, especially, you know, some of the, the, the car company valuations, um, you know, those uh, I think are building in too much uh, embedded promise, which which is unlikely to be delivered. So I would say anything in the renewable space with the auto companies that I think you know which I'm talking about, which you will not allow me to name, Richard. So so those are the ones I would you know uh, point <laughs> towards as hot potatoes. Not my rules, don't blame me, but yes, we can't mention them this time. Thank you very much indeed, Amit. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, we've got more for you on both our award-winning Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast. Just search for those titles in your favoured app. Thank you to my guests today, Anna Stubnitska, Judith Feingold, Amit Loder, and Yuanden Lang. You can access all of our investment thinking, including our 2021 outlook at fidelityinternational.com. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity... Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.